If you're active on social media, you know that not a day goes by without someone posting an article or news story which sparks sometimes heated disagreement and discussion over one of the many issues related to life and sexuality. Discussions center on topics like abortion, euthanasia, gender, and marriage. The reality is that even in the church, disagreements and divides are on the rise. How can we build a strong biblical foundation that serves us well as we seek to respond according to a Christian world and life view? Do worldviews even matter? And what's at stake in these conversations with our kids? We'll be looking to find answers to the hard questions about life and sexuality as we chat with Nancy Piercy, author of the book, Love Thy Body, on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, I am really excited about the podcast that we have today. We have been waiting a while to have our guest on, who we'll introduce in just a couple of minutes. Before we do that, I want to let you know that Jason Soshenik is here. Jason, joining us as hey, always here. from the upper left. And I need to tell people that today uh, we are going to not be referring to you as Jason. We're going to refer to you as Sosh, which I think was yes. your, what was that a nickname when you were in high school? or It was, Okay. Yeah. Well, and there's a reason why we're going to do that, because we have another Jason joining us. Uh, I have a friend named Jason Magrum, who is a youth pastor. He's actually the student pastor at Cross Point Church in Perry, Georgia. He's also one of our students in our Doctor of Ministry in Ministry to the Emerging Generations track up at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And he's been part of our CPYU Reading Discussion Group on Facebook which actually has been involved for the last couple of months in discussing the book we're going to talk about today. But his name's Jason Magrum. Jason, hey, thanks for joining us from Georgia. Hey, Walt. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah. Now, you were weighing in quite a bit when we had our discussion online in the CPYU Facebook group about Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. And you offered some great insights, had some great questions and with the way that discussion went, we thought, you know, this book is so good that we need to get the author on. So today we're going to have a conversation with Nancy Piercy about her book, Love Thy Body. This is a book that we really believe youth workers and parents need to be reading, rereading, studying, because the ideas in here as it relates to worldviews and, and the undercurrents of what's happening in our culture right now, especially on uh, like life issues, you know, euthanasia, abortion, and issues that are really hot topics in our youth ministry world right now, as well as in the culture at large, things like gender and sexuality. This book is good on that and really helpful in helping us shape a Christian world and life view. Nancy is currently the professor of apologetics and a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She's a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, and she's the editor-at-large of the Piercy Report. And she has talked in a variety of places, uh, addressed numerous different groups on all kinds of issues that uh, are hot issues in our culture right now. She's published numerous books as well, 
And a couple of the books that have been really helpful for me and that we've actually used with our students in a variety of settings, her book, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity is one of those books. And then the book, Saving Leonardo, is a good one as well, subtitled, A Call to Resist the Secular Assault on Mind, Morals, and Meaning. So, Nancy Piercy, welcome. We're glad you're here to, to uh, have a conversation with us about Love Thy Body. Thank you, Walt. I appreciate you having me. We want to start just by hearing a little bit of your story. I find your story fascinating. There are parts of it that are intriguing to me because you've, you've gotten to go places that I wish I could have gone at formative parts in my life and interact with people that you've interacted with who you know, have influenced me through their writings. Tell us a little bit of your story, and because I think it's important. Well, absolutely. Um, it is what drives all my writing and all my speaking, because when I was a teenager in high school, I started having questions about my Christian upbringing. I was raised uh, in a Christian home, but I was attending public high school. All your teachers are secular. All the textbooks are secular. And I just started wondering, how do we know Christianity is true? That was really my one question. I didn't have lots of other questions about the Bible, um, as some people do. Just that one. How do we know it's true? And unfortunately, none of the adults in my life at that time were able to answer it. Uh, I talked to a Christian university professor. I, I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. And I thought, that's it? I even had an opportunity to talk to a uh, the dean of a Christian seminary, and I thought I'd get a more substantial answer from him, but all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. And so eventually I decided Christianity must not have any answers, and I, I wasn't particularly rebellious or anything. I just felt like it was a matter of well, I probably wouldn't have used this word as a teenager, but the feeling I had was it was a matter of intellectual honesty, that if you don't have good reasons for something, you shouldn't believe it, whether it's Christianity or anything else. And I realized I had no reasons to know it was true. I set my Christian upbringing aside and decided it was up to me to find out what was really true, which is a pretty big project for a 16-year-old. But I literally began walking down the hallway to the library at the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf. Because I thought, if I can't get any live people to talk to me about this, maybe these dead guys, maybe these philosophers over the ages have offered some answers. After all, isn't that what philosophy is supposed to be about? Answering questions like, what is truth? And how do we know it? And is there meaning to life? And is there a foundation for ethics, or is it just, you know, what feels right to me and what feels right to you? And so I was really wrestling with all of these questions for several years. Um, in fact, I, I realized pretty quickly that if there is no God, the answer to all of those questions is no. There is no meaning to life. There is no foundation for ethics. There is really no objective universal truth. So I had gone pretty rapidly into skepticism and relativism. I didn't even know the, those words at the time. But those were my the, the ideas that I was embracing. Um, and I, I went back to I went to school in Germany because we had lived there when I was a child, and I wanted to go back. And living in Europe, I stumbled across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, which was called Labrie. 
which is French for the shelter. Um, I stumbled across it. I said, people sometimes say, why would you go to a Christian ministry if you weren't a Christian? Well, I, I went because I had some um, family members who were stopping by for just a weekend. And they said, come and see us. So I didn't go to a Christian place. I went to see my family members. But when I was there, it was pretty obvious from my questions that I was not a Christian. And uh, back then, Labrie was um, much less structured. If they had a free bed, they'd say, you've got a lot of questions. Would you like to stay? And that's exactly what they said. I said, okay, sounds good. I was so impressed because it was the first time I had ever encountered Christians who engaged with questions, who understood the questions that non-Christians have. By that time, I was pretty steeped in secular philosophies, and I had never met any Christians who could engage with those secular philosophies and, and show that Christianity had real, rational, discussable answers that you could support it with reasons and arguments. I was so impressed. I was, uh, I just had no idea that Christianity could be supported with good reasons. In fact, I was so impressed that I left after a month. <laughs> um, I had, I felt such inner pressure to try to come to a decision that I, I needed some breathing space. So I left Labrie, went back to the States, but because of my time at Labrie and studying under Francis Schaeffer, I discovered there was such a thing as apologetics, so I continued reading. That's when I discovered C.S. Lewis, for example. And so through my own reading on apologetics, eventually I decided I was intellectually convinced that it was true. And then I thought, where do I find other Christians? Because I wasn't connected to a church or anything. I was just doing this strictly on my own still. And I thought, well, I knew some Christians back at Labrie. So a year and a half later, I went back. And that's when I really got grounded in understanding Christianity as a worldview and, um, and and really understood it, how it applies to all of life. And so that's really been the, the heart of the message. Um, I, I, have such, I have such a desire to help young people who are having the same kinds of questions that I was having back then um, and, and help them to find answers, help give them hope that Christianity really does have good answers to their questions. I, You know, as you tell your story, one of the things that strikes me about it is your inquisitiveness at a young age. I wonder about this now. I feel in our world of youth ministry, we have a lot of youth workers listening, that we somehow have bought into a lie or believed some bad press about the intellectual capacities, the curiosity of kids, the ability of kids to go deep. What are you finding as you travel? Because you talk about deep issues. Are students engaging? And from where you sit, do you think we're, we're selling kids short and setting the, the bar fairly low? Oh, yes, I do. And I like the way you put that, selling them short. If you look at the, the research done on why young people leave the church, and especially the research done by Christian Smith, a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, he did the largest study ever of um, teens and adolescents. And they, they uh, gave them open-ended questions. In other words, they did not give them sample answers. And so uh, for the first, you know, one of the few surveys ever done, we got the answers in the, in the young people's own words. And the researchers were stunned. They expected the kids to give emotional reasons uh, for why they left the church. You know, somebody hurt my feelings, a broken relationship with somebody. But instead, all of the questions 
the majority of the questions were under the category of what the researchers called intellectual doubts and questions. In other words, they said things like, well, scientifically, I don't think Christianity holds up. Or, you know, I don't think it makes much sense. I have these questions and doubts that people can't answer. They all had to do with questions, uh, you know, mental questions that young people had. Yeah, they didn't know how to put it necessarily in complex language, but they were not they were not emotional or relational questions so much as intellectual questions. And that was really telling. All, the, all, all of the surveys out there end up finding that young people have more questions than we give them credit for. Mm. So in the book, you really do take, uh, you know, some might say this is a rather heady book, and I guess because people are saying that, and it is, there's, there, it's well-reasoned, it's well-written, uh, that's one of the reasons why I chose to put it in as our first book in our reading group there for, for Youth Workers on Facebook. Um, it, that's the approach that you're taking here to deal with these matters, to get us to think, you know, to worship God by using our minds. What specifically was your desire in writing Love Thy Body? Well, one of the things that we, another thing we don't give uh, young people enough credit for is that they are absorbing ideas from the secular culture. And if we are not understanding the secular culture, we will not be able to talk to our own young people. So they're not living in the Christian bubble anymore with the internet uh, in particular, with social media. They're absorbing non-Christian ideas. And so one of the things I wanted to do in Love Thy Body is help explain what the secular view is on issues from abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. What are the secular views? Um, not uh, for, for two reasons. Not only do we want to talk to secular people, that's important, but today it's crucial for talking to our own young people, our own children. You know, I guess it was in the 60s when people first started talking about the generation gap. Well, it's still there. There still is a gap between what we learned as adults what we experience in our own teen years, uh, and, and what our what our teens t today are experiencing, much more secular. The the pressure to think uh, along a secular worldview is much more intense. The pressure on our young people to compartmentalize their faith and move it into a you know a, a separate part of their life. Well, okay, this applies to church. This applies to Bible study. Um, and, and it can be very, very sincere and, and very meaningful to them. But nonetheless, it is separate from the rest of their life and the way they think, even about moral issues like the ones I cover in Love Thy Body. So we need to understand the secular worldview if we're going to be effective, even at communicating with Christian teens. Mm. Hey, you, you mentioned something there just about compartmentalizing faith. And the opposite of that, as I understand it, is what we would call, you know, an integration of faith into all of life. Can you explain that a bit so that uh, folks who are listening understand what that means? Because I find that many in the church have never been challenged to think in integrated ways. Yes, um, it's really the whole theme of my earlier book, Total Truth, was um, the call on Christians to understand how Christianity applies to all of life. And I have to tell you, Walt, I have I've come to see, think that total truth is more relevant now than it was when I wrote it, <laughs> because I find that that sacred secular split is very deeply embedded 
in many in the thinking of many Christians. They've, most of them have heard that term sacred secular split, but they haven't really understood what it means. Um, most Christians still even today tend to to treat their Christianity as as true about part of life. It's true about uh, it tells it tells me how to get to heaven. It tells me how to live a good life. It might give me some tips um, on relationships and other private matters, but they don't think it's something that applies to the public realm to the realm of business and industry and politics and education. It's much harder today to understand how to apply Christianity to all of these other areas. And, and admittedly, um, the challenge is harder, it's greater today than it's ever been because the public realm is much more secularized than it was. And we find um, now that I'm in um, higher education, for example, teaching at a Christian university, even most of our professors you know, where are they getting their training? They're getting their training in secular graduate schools. They're not learning how to integrate that Christian understanding into their field. And in fact, if they did, they might get kicked out of the program. There have been people kicked out of secular graduate programs for publicly stating a Christian point of view. And so they come to a place like Houston Baptist University where I teach, and we need to do internal faculty development to help them understand um, how to integrate, even even in their own field. Uh, our, our former provost told me once, uh, the, the, the top question that faculty come to her with was, how do I integrate my Christian perspective into the discipline that I'm teaching? So people sense that need. A lot of people want it. Obviously, we're not going to experience the joy and the power of our Christian faith that God promises um, if we keep it compartmentalized in only one part of life. The trouble is most people don't know how to bring it out. And so what, a lot of my writing on Christian worldview is how to bring your Christian perspective into every area of life. Hmm. So, J Jason Mangrum, did you have a question? Yeah, I'd love to ask, Nancy. Uh, so many in our group were so grateful uh, for the uh, the confidence in the in the truth and in the worldview that you presented. It was so well defended. Uh, we had, we had a lot of people in the group excited to be sharing those things with their students and with their students' parents. Uh, could you give us some wisdom as to maybe postures to avoid? Uh, or maybe habits to avoid that when we do get excited about truth and God's word and, and want to give that to kids, uh, to young people and their parents passionately, what are some postures or words maybe we should avoid in, in doing that, but still conveying the power of the truth? Right, right. That's a big part of Love Thy Body is giving people a new vocabulary uh, because it's very easy for us to fall into just negative vocabulary, right? To say, this is wrong, this is a sin, don't do it. Um, but in, in Love Thy Body, I give people positive language. Let's take, um, well, you know, let's take the transgender issue because that's the most obvious. And I just wrote an article for LifeSite News. Um, and the, the news hook is very, very troubling. And that is in, in Canada the Supreme Court of British Columbia has just ordered that a 14-year-old girl who identifies as a trans boy must be allowed to receive testosterone injections without her parents' consent. 
And what's more, if her parents refer to her with female pronouns or address her by her birth name, the court said they will be considered guilty of family violence. And at the same time, almost the same day, uh, here in the U.S., a, a respected bioethicist journal, uh, bioethics journal, American Journal of Bioethics, featured an article bio, bio, um, arguing the same thing, arguing that uh, transgender children, the state needs to be legally mandated to overrule parents of transgender children if they do not consent to give them puberty blockers. So we're well on our way also to denying parental rights when it comes to injecting children with toxic chemicals and hormones. So what should Christians do? And what this means is it's up to us as Christian parents, teachers, youth workers to get there first in terms of ministering to young people who may be having some questions or issues with their gender identity. And in Love Day Body, I, I tell a story. You know, it's not enough to just say, don't do it. You need positive examples of how to deal with a child who's, who has these issues. And in Love Day Body, I tell a story of Brandon, um, not his real name, uh, but I knew Brandon from a very young age, and he clearly suffered from gender dysphoria. Before he was even walking, his babysitter told his mother, he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he was gentle and sweet and compliant and the traits that we stereotypically associate with girls. When he was in preschool, invariably he was playing with the little girls and not the boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents and saying, I feel the way girls do. I'm interested in the things girls are. God should have made me a girl. He was, he felt like he didn't fit in anywhere because he, he didn't identify with boys. And of course, but of course, girls didn't accept him because he was a boy in this, with the same way that they would accept another girl. So by age 14, he was scouring the internet for information on uh, sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made sure he knew that they loved him just the way he was. They did not pressure him to change. Uh, one of my friends who's a former homosexual said, when I was young, I loved music and poetry. And my father was baffled and get, kept trying to toughen me up by pushing me into football and sports and other masculine things. To their credit, Brandon's parents did not do that. They let him know that it's perfectly acceptable for a man to be gentle and emotional and relational. It may mean that God has gifted him for one of the caring professions like counselor or psychologist or healthcare worker. Of course, in the same way, it's perfectly acceptable for a girl to be non-gender conforming, to be rational, assertive, outdoorsy, sporty. His parents, his parents' favorite line was, this is, the, this is the line they've used with him constantly, over and over again. They kept saying, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. And eventually, Brandon did decide that transitioning would not give him what he wanted. You know, he had to face the biological reality that hormones and surgery would not make him a girl that uh, there's, there's a very famous TED talk by a cardiologist in which her, her, fav her famous line is, every cell has a sex. 
you can't change every cell in your body. So the point of this was today, young people are under intense pressure to question their gender identity as never before. And Brendan's parents fought for him. And as pastors and youth workers and teachers and counselors, we need to fight for our children in a culture that tells them all identities are up for grabs, that there are no signposts, that today, today they're being even told that biological sex is a social construction and gives them no clue to who they are. So, and as you know, many states are now passing laws against therapy for kids who are either uh, for, for minors uh, in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation. So, you know, it's up to us. We've got to do it informally in our families and our churches and our youth groups. We need to fight for the children who are gender nonconforming. The, the literature, the scientific literature shows, shows that the most reliable correlate the most reliable predictor of non-heterosexual behavior in adulthood, either sexual, either sex, either um, homosexual or, or um, transgenderism, the most reliable predictor is gender nonconformity in childhood. So these kids are at risk today, and I I would suggest that Christians need to really make a point of, of making connections with our gender nonconforming children and being preventive and proactive by loving them and letting them know that God made them who they are and God has and God has a wonderful plan for their lives. Mm. This is so good. Listen, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're talking to Nancy Piercy about her book Love Thy Body. Stick with us. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, We've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our sexual integrity initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. Thanks for sticking with us here on Youth Culture Matters. Uh, we are talking with Nancy Piercy about her book, Love Thy Body. And uh, just as a reminder, in our episode notes that you can find both on the CPYU website and then also in your uh, podcast player, you will see all those different uh, aspects that you can look at, uh, all the many details that were discussed over the course of this episode. Well, Nancy, I I do have a quick question with regards to... uh, transgenderism. You you had spoken specifically around gender identity before our break, and you in the book speak about abortion rates and how they've gone down over the last several years, and even some of the strategy that has been used. It's, it's something that uh, really is at the heart of your book. I'm just curious how there might be a correlation or any sort of uh, looking at the impact that those rates going down and the strategy that was used and whether or not that's a strategy that could be implemented with regards to conversations around gender identity. Right. That's a, one of the main themes of my book, Love Thy Body, is that there is a common thread connecting the life issues, meaning abortion, euthanasia, and so on, 
to the sexuality issues. There's a common underlying secular worldview that is driving all of them. And it's a worldview that separates the body from the person. And you saw, you see that easily with transgenderism because um, the, the transgender activists themselves explicitly argue gender has nothing to do with biological sex. That's their main argument. Um, but what people have sometimes a little harder time seeing is that the same argument underlies, well, say, abortion, as you mentioned. And, and it's, it's easier to see if we just look at what secular bioethicists are arguing. What they're arguing today is that she, um, they no longer deny that life begins at conception. Uh, most of us don't realize this, but on the level of professional bioethicists, they agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from science, from genetics and DNA, is just too strong to deny it. But their, their stance is summed up in a, there was a recent article that came out and it was titled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? So how, what they're saying is being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person, which is defined usually in terms of mental abilities, a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. So look at the implication there. As long as the fetus is merely biologically human, it is literally literally seen as just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. In other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And so the arguments for abortion today rest on a divided concept of the human being that says the fetus is a you know biologically human. We could say it's a body up to a certain point, and then at some point it becomes a person. Of course, no bioethicist can agree on when it becomes a person, because it, if it's not connected to being biologically human, then it becomes purely arbitrary. But it is this division between body and person that sums up all of the other arguments in, in every other area. So um, you, you said, how does it, how can we use that same strategy elsewhere? Well, take homosexuality. Uh, again, no one really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. Biologically, no one really denies that, just like no one denies biologically that the fetus is human. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when someone embraces a same-sex identity, implicitly they're contradicting that design. They're saying, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? We have to help people see this as a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And it pits the mind against the body, which leads to fragmentation and self-alienation. And so our answer to this should be, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? It's Christianity that actually has a higher view of the body that says we are holistic beings. Our mind and emotions are meant to be in tune with our body. We are meant to take our identity from our biological sex. We are meant to honor 
our bodies. I tell lots of stories in Lovely Body, and one of them is a young woman named Jean, who lived as a lesbian for many years, and uh, today has married, married to a man. You have to say that these days. Married to a man and has two children. And here's how she explained it. She said, I came to trust that God made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. And so that's the kind of language we, we should be using, that positive language of honoring our body, respecting our biological sex, living in harmony with the creator's design. That kind of language is, is, language is what's going to capture people's hearts and help them to stand against the secular denigration of the body by helping them to show that the Christian worldview is holistic, self-integrating, leads to inner unity and wholeness. I love the way you say this because one of the accusations that you hear against Christians and the church when we talk about these issues is, you know, people, quote unquote, on the other side would say, well, you know, you're, you're, you don't like what I do, and that's what's motivating you here, and, you know, basically what you're doing is you're diminishing my opportunity to flourish and experience the, the true freedom of being my true self. Uh, you know, sort of a posture of, you know, you're trying to handcuff us or legislate us into being less than we actually are. But the way you state that there is so positive. Now, I'm sure the way many Christians interact with others on these matters, I've seen it, it's not done in a, in a grace-filled way that communicates truth. But what you're saying here, Nancy, to me seems like, you know, as I often say, you know, we need to love people enough to tell them the truth. And it really flows out of a care and a concern, a Christ-like care and concern for other, a love of neighbor that is really rooted in our desire to see all human beings flourish and realize their full humanity. Yeah, and even what's interesting is even some secular people are starting to see it now with the transgender issue. Uh, this is this story is not in Love Thy Body because it was an article I read after I was done with uh, writing it, but I ran into an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years. She'd lived as a boy since age 11 and then reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And I thought that would have been a great quote that for is a book good. called Love Thy Body. Even secular people are starting to see that transgenderism is based on body hatred. And what, I, what I'm trying to get my secular friends to see is that homosexuality also rests on body hatred. It's just not quite as easy to see. But if you, um, if you read the secular proponents, they will often, you can often find it there. There's, a, there's an outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia who I'm sure you know. She's oh, yeah. a fair, fairly well-known public intellectual. And that, listen to the way she defends homosexuality. Uh, on the one hand, um, some conservatives like to read her because she's not postmodern. She rejects the postmodern notion that sex is just a social construct. No, no. She says, nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But, but she's a lesbian. So how does she, how does she defend that? She says, why not defy nature? These are her exact words. Why not defy nature? 
After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So what is she saying? She's saying that if our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we're obligated to defend or, or respect. And they, our bodies convey no moral message. Our bodies give no clue to our identity. We may do with them as we see fit. So the secular ethic here is resting on the notion that the human body is a product of mindless material forces. It's, it's just a meat machine, as people like Richard Dawkins like to say, and the mind is free to use it any way it wants. And what, again, we, we need to counter a very positive Christian view of nature. It says, nature is a product of a loving God, and it expresses his, his purpose. I mean, it's evident to observation. This is, this is not just theological. Science itself can tell us that living things are structured for a purpose, that eyes are for seeing, ears are for hearing, wings are for flying, fins are for swimming, that the development of the entire organism is directed by an inbuilt genetic plan or blueprint. So science itself tells us that nature exhibits a design, a plan, order, a purpose. And what Christians are saying is that we live in harmony with that purpose, we will be healthier and happier. Hey, Miss Nancy, it's Jason again. I had a, uh, a question to, to <clears throat> switch gears maybe just a bit in speaking to uh, youth workers. Uh, I was on the phone the other day with a friend whose historical understanding of uh, biblical sexuality and, and his interacting with students with, with names in the trenches, you know, struggling with their sexuality and these questions, and now he finds himself uh, with maybe leaders in his denomination, uh, leaders in his church. Uh, so this isn't a debate with the Peter Singers of the world, uh, but it, very much sexually, it's people in his own congregation or his own denomination. Uh, what's some wisdom to offer them or encouragement to uh, to practitioners who feel like an outsider in their own congregation or own denomination in some ways? Oh, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I spoke recently at a, a Christian school, classical Christian school, very, very conservative. Um, teachers were very well trained. And when I was finished speaking on Love A Body, the students, um, to, to my surprise, the students all asked hostile questions. And they were merely parroting what they were hearing in the secular media just parroting the exact same things that you hear in the secular media. So um, you're, you're right, even in Christian circles, that's why, I, even in Christian circles, they're absorbing the secular worldview, and that's why we have to grapple with the secular worldview. And I, I would say, too, what we're up against is when I say um, Christians have a high view of the body, and that that is what underlies the Christian ethic, uh, so we can argue not only that Christianity is true, but that it's attractive, it's appealing. You know, you have to make people want it to be true. People are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? So one of the things, again, how do we craft this in a positive way? There was actually a, a review of Love Thy Body by a Christian philosopher 
who took me to task on this and he said, no, 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 it's, it's secular people who have a high view of the body because they're materialists. So they think matter is all that exists. They have, they have too high and exalted view of the body. And he obviously um, had, missed, had, had missed the Richard Dawkins implications that no, in the secular world view, the body is just a meat machine and has no higher value or dignity. And this is what we're up against even in the Christian world. This was a Christian um, philosopher. Even Christians have lost touch with their own heritage. One of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. And what we have to help people recover is our own heritage. The early Christian church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that devalued the material world, just like modern secularism does, but for different reasons. The early church faced philosophies like Gnosticism and Platonism that treated this world as a realm of evil and corruption. In fact, Gnosticism taught that the, this world was created by a low-level deity, an evil god, because no good god, no self-respecting god, would demean himself mucking about with matter. Gnosticism taught that the body was bad. It, they called it the prison house of the soul. And the goal of salvation was to escape the physical realm, to leave it behind. So in this historical context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary. It taught that the material universe was created by the supreme deity, a good God, and therefore it is intrinsically good. Even though it is fallen, it is intrinsically good. So it's not like a cheap plastic trinket that's broken. It's like a priceless heirloom that was broken in the fall. Christianity's greatest scandal at the time, though, was the incarnation, the claim that that same supreme deity had actually entered into the realm of matter and taken on a physical body. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say that he did escape the prison house of the soul, as Gnosticism taught that we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back in a physical resurrection, a bodily resurrection. To the Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. This was regress. Who would want to come back to the realm of the, of the body? That's why Paul says, the whole idea of a bodily resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks. And what's going to happen at the end of time? God's not going to scrap the material world as though he made a mistake the first time. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heavens and a new earth. See, the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. This is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. I have to tell you, there's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. The body participates in the drama of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And this is what we need to recover as a church and working with young people. We need to recover the incredibly high view, that the high dignity and value that Christianity gives to the human being. Nancy, this is so good. You know, your message would be so much better if you had just a little bit of passion. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love your passion about this. And this is the way we need to understand and teach. So uh, I get it. It comes through in the book. You know, what you said there before we take a break, what you said about the classical Christian school and the students there being hostile with their questions, absorbing, you know, reflecting these worldviews. 
that's not surprising to me at all. You know, we see that so much, and I it made me think of a, a one little sentence in your book that jumped out at me on page 135 that said, the most powerful worldviews are the ones we absorb without knowing it. And that's a great call to, to think, you know, about worldviews. Let's take a break. We'll come back and continue our conversation with Nancy Piercy. Here at CPYU, we want to help you help parents stay up to date on today's youth culture. One of our most popular resources is our monthly parent page. This four-page, full-color resource offers parents a timely, practical look into current youth culture trends, along with resources to help them parent their children and teens Christianly in today's rapidly changing youth culture. If you're a youth worker who would like to get this monthly resource into the hands of your parents, you can see a sample parent page and learn more by visiting cpyuparentpage.com. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're talking with Nancy Piercy about her book, Love Thy Body. This is one that I really believe is essential for parents and youth workers to sit down, to read. You're going to have to wrestle through some things because most of us, I, I really believe this, have not been trained to think well or as, as well as we should have been trained to think. And I, I think, you know, as you as you wrestle through with this book, you're actually going to get some training in how to think. You know, I, I talk about thinking Christianly or thinking worldviewishly or thinking in in the context of, as Nancy mentioned later, you know, the biblical drama of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, or where we fall in that story and how that story shapes us. So I really want to recommend that you get this book and that you read it. I'd even recommend that you read it in the context of a group so that you can take some time to discuss it together. And I will mention, I know Jason mentioned this a little bit earlier, that everything that we mention on this podcast today, whether it's a book, an article, um, a particular author, you know, whatever it is, Go to our page, cpyu.org, and look for this particular episode of the podcast beneath the player. You will find links to everything that we mentioned. So if you're accessing this on a podcast player, you know, like uh, Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, you may not see it, uh, or you will probably won't see it under the, the player, but come back to our, uh, to our homepage, cpyu.org, and, and click on it for this podcast, and you'll find all of this. So... Jason Soshinik, you've got a question. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about the, the body and how Christians have a high view of the body. Uh, we've focused a lot of attention on uh, LGBT, uh, around gender identity, transgender. I, I am curious, though, because in your book you do spend some time talking about the hookup culture, and I, I would just really love for you to maybe speak into that just for a short bit uh, as we come to the close of our episode. Right. Um because it's, it, the best way to understand it is the same division between the body and the person uh, that separates or divides body from person. And think about the hookup culture. Its core assumption is that sex can be purely physical, cut off from the whole person with no hint of love or commitment. And young people know the script all too well. I, I have several poignant quotes in Love Thy Body from college students like um, Alicia. Alicia says, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. 
So do you recognize the language there? She's basically saying you have to turn off your mind and your emotions. Critics of the hookup culture, including many Christians, will often say, well, it gives sex too much importance. But in reality, it gives sex too little importance because it says it has no higher significance. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine had an article quoting a young man who said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. So the hookup culture expresses a worldview, a worldview that says your body can be treated as purely physical, driven by physical impulses and instincts, cut off from the rich inner life of a whole person. So no wonder it's creating a trail of wounded people. People are trying to live out a secular ethic that does not fit who they truly are. We do not naturally thrive on casual, meaningless sexual encounters. In fact, uh, even our bodies rebel against that because scientists are telling us that when we have sexual intercourse, we have, we are, uh, chemicals are released, oxytocin and vasopressin that stimulate an instinct for caring and nurturing and bonding. So no, no wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. Uh, a, a, secular, a, a secular doctor um, who works at UCLA actually says, you might say we were designed to bond. And you wouldn't expect a secular person to talk that way. But you see, the Christian ethic is incarnational. What you do with your body is meant to be in harmony with who you are as a whole person. And that's why, as youth workers, as parents, as pastors, we can help our young people recognize the reason behind the rules. Now, it's not just arbitrary, and it certainly it's not just to be killjoys. In the biblical worldview, the most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate union of the whole person in the whole life commitment of marriage. So there's no division, there's no fragmentation, there's no setting the body against the mind, there's no shutting off your emotions. In, in the Christian ethic, you blossom, you flourish on all levels. Jason. Hey, uh, while we're talking about hookup culture, Nancy, on page 139, you talk about uh, the communion of persons uh, and how that reflects the Trinity and uh, these type things. Working with middle and high school students, you know, we're always counseling the young person that says, I've, I've gone too far in this relationship. I wish I wouldn't have, or for whatever reason, how can I experience hope and healing moving forward? Uh, could you give us some words of wisdom of when you find yourself there, how do you move forward in singleness and in wholeness? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the arguments that, Surprisingly, I have found to work very well with both um, with both my secular friends and with Christians um, is an argument from the environmental movement. And you say, what? You know, what's the what's the connection? Well, what we've learned from the environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to respect the structure of nature. When we intervene, we need to work with the natural order. We may not do as we see fit. Um, we, we quoted Camille Paglia earlier saying, uh, you know, as a lesbian, she says, we can do whatever, whatever we see fit when it comes to our bodies. Well, we can't do that when it comes to the environment. We need to respect the structure of nature. And in the same way, what Christians are saying 
is that we need to respect our own biological nature. The correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the original creation that God pronounced very good. Uh, when Love Thy Body first came out, I was surprised actually by the customer reviews on places like Facebook and Amazon. The most common response went something like this. I picked up your book to learn handy answers to current issues. But I, dis I discovered that it's transforming me. Mm. It's te teaching me the, the dignity and the worth that Christianity gives to the physical realm. The most frequent word was transformative. In other words, they had a they found, were finding that they had absorbed the sacred secular view more than they realized. And I think whether uh, whether it's young people going into into um, adulthood or whether you're dealing, like you said, with young people who have already found out that they've made some mistakes in this area, the most important thing is to recover the notion that we are made to be unified wholes, that you know we, we are embodied spirits, and both are important. Um, our body is important. Our spirit is important. We are meant to be integrated unities and that God respects and loves our physical being um, because he made it. It's his handiwork. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, some, some Christians try to be so spiritual that they downgrade the material world. And he said, they're trying to be more spiritual than God. Uh, God, God likes matter. He made it. And so I, I think today uh, that is one of the main things that we need to recover to to have to both to achieve healing if we've made mistakes in this area and in terms of going forward in helping sec attract secular people to the Christian message. Nancy, you speak in the book, and I, I think this is a good uh, segue or, or link with what we've been talking about between the hookup culture and, and then past mistakes, but... Um, one of the issues uh, uh, that the church also now faces is both those that are uh, single or you had also even spoken about celibates. And the quote that I, I grabbed that I thought was really powerful is the challenge for today's church is to become richly interdependent uh, community that once again makes it possible for celibates to find family among fellow Christians. And as we're talking about interdependency, integration, I'm just wanting to hear maybe some thoughts around that. Uh, what, what would be some ways, practical ways, that that might actually come into play? Yeah, I think, I do think that we're probably reaching the end of a period when Christians could um, live among their secular neighbors and just go to church on Sunday. I really support people who are trying to um, come together in Christian communities. They're, they're, they're scattered around the country. We used to live in one in, in St. Louis. Um, we, we went to a church that had an inner city mission and that also um, required you, if you wanted to be a member, you, had to, you were required to move into the neighborhood. You were required to be physically located in that neighborhood so that you could have a, a real face-to-face -face ministry to your secular neighbors and so that you could have real face-to-face -face community with your Christian brothers and sisters throughout the week. Um, I, I think that Christians start need, needing to think about recovering those kind of close-knit uh, relationships and communities. Um, that certainly, the early church had much more. It's, it's, it was the reason behind the monasteries, of course, which were much more common in the early church and all through the Middle Ages, is that people sensed that if especially singles 
need to somehow replace the family with committed, long-term supportive relationships. We may, we, not, we may not go back to monasteries, but we need to be inspired by that notion. Um, so people have different views of that book called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreyer. Um, but he's calling for that as well. He's starting to say that Christians can no longer simply live among their secular neighbors scattered throughout. Um, they need to find ways to be interacting with other Christians all through the week. I think especially today, as the numbers of single people gets higher and higher, uh, that's going to challenge us to form stronger Christian communities. I experienced it at Labrie. I have to tell you, an awful lot of people who went to Labrie said that they became Christians not just because of the apologetics, although that was very persuasive, but also because they witnessed a form of Christian community and love that they had never seen before. And I would say that was my own experience as well. I was equally impressed with the quality of the relationships that I saw at Labrie as with the apologetics. And it's that twofold witness. That's why that's why Schaefer wrote that book, Love is uh, on Love, right? Love being the final apologetic, as he put it. Love is the final apologetic. People have to see that it really changes lives. The, the gospel changes lives. So yes, you're absolutely right. In the, the final apologetics on these moral issues is showing people the quality of love within the Christian community. Mm. I love this, and it reminds me a lot of like Wes Hill writing about, you know, spiritual friendship, Rosaria Butterfield, you know, and, and they have both dealt in their lives with same-sex attraction, and yet they were drawn to the gospel and the message of the gospel, and uh, so that, that's rich. I, I, I love that you mentioned that. Uh, real quick question. You mentioned Schaefer. If somebody wants an introduction to Francis Schaefer, is there one book you'd point them to first? Um, well, two books. I would point them to The God Who Is There and Escape From Reason. Okay. They're, they're really sort of an integrated unity. Um, Escape From Reason is very short. So if you read that as an introduction and then read The God Who Is There, those are the best books. Um, that's where he really does his um, sort of analysis of the big picture of where, where our cult, uh, how our culture has rejected Christianity yeah. and what are the major questions that we need to answer in our day. Yeah, he's been so influential in so many lives, and some of the you know great thinkers, yourself included, in the church today. Uh, you know, we 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 see the kind of the the bloodlines going back to to Schaefer. They always they always seem to go back there. Nancy, we're, we've come to the end of our time, and I want to give you an opportunity to uh, make two statements here. Uh, the first one is, what would you say? You know, just a sentence or two, sentence or two of encouragement here. Final words, parting words to parents. Well, do you know, I would like to come back to, I think it was our first question, and where we got into the story of Brandon, the young boy who had gender dysphoria from a young age. Um, I'm, I'm now on a lot of websites uh, with parents of transgender children, um, parents whose children are being fast-tracked into transitioning, at gender clinics, uh, parents whose hearts are being broken by this. Um, uh, and I have to say, we need to be proactive. We need to make sure our children know that we love them from the beginning. 
the vast majority of children who get drawn into either homosexuality or transgenderism are gender non-conforming. They're either girls who, are, who don't fit the feminine stereotypes or they're boys like Brandon who don't fit the masculine stereotypes. And that's painful. It's painful not to feel like you fit in. It's painful to feel like you're different and, and that people of your sex reject you. That's how they feel. They feel like, you know, other, Brandon felt like other boys reject me. I don't connect with them. We need to be with them from day one. We need to have our antenna out for especially those children um, who are somewhat gender nonconforming. Don't treat it as a phase. Um, make sure that you are forming a strong enough relationship with them that will carry them through when they become uh, adolescents and maybe even before, especially if they're in public schools, they are going to experience excruciating pressure on these questions. Excruciating pressure. It's very hard for us to understand how much pressure they're under because we didn't have, we didn't experience right. that when yeah. we were their age. Yeah. And so really entering into their world and making sure you have a rock solid bond with your child that's going to be strong enough to carry them through the kind of pressure they're going to be under. Yeah. I think that is the most important thing. And many parents don't realize how alienated their kids felt until the kid comes to them and says, you know, uh, I don't think I'm a girl. I think I'm really a boy. Yeah. And then it hits them like a ton of bricks. Don't wait till that moment. Be proactive. It's a good word. How about a quick word to youth workers? Well, youth, youth workers are coming along a little later usually um, because usually... Um, you know, already adolescents or teens. But again, the, the most important thing is to understand that young people are being pressured to question ge their gender identity and they're being, um, they're being rewarded for doing so. Like I said, I'm on a lot of websites now with, um, they're, they're called transcritical websites. They're websites that come together to be critical of the transgender movement because they're parents and, uh, and sometimes professionals who are very concerned about the transgender movement. And um, many, of these, many of these parents um, and, and, and teachers and counselors uh, are saying that young people are being, if they do come out as trans, they instantly acquire popularity. They're instantly applauded they're told how how strong and courageous there are they are i mean who kids what kid is going to be able to resist that you, you know the 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 um media messages oh these are vulnerable uh discriminated against populations no that's not how they experience it many of them experience it as an increase in popularity an increase in status and so you know, your normal kids are being taught, normal, quote unquote, your normal kids are being taught that they're boring, they're dull, they're not exciting, they're not brave. So we need to stand alongside our normal kids and, and help them to, to have the kind of um, courage and confidence that they need to stand against this kind of pressure. Thank you. That's good. Well, this has been great, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to point people, as you know, as we have been doing since it came out, to your book, Love Thy Body, and your other books as well. We wish you the best. Thank you so much for your ministry to the church, for the way you've equipped us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking uh, with you. Well, thanks. 
And uh, Jason and Jason, Jason Mangrum down there, thanks for joining us. We're going to have yeah. to have you back on here. Boy, you've upped it. You've upped it for the Jason quotient here. So uh, we love having you on. <laughs> thanks, thanks for so having much. me, Walt. Yeah. Thank Always you. a lot of fun. Thanks. And uh, Jason in the upper left up there in Spokane, thank you as always. And uh, to the rest Always of our good to be here. Yes, thank you. And for the rest of our folks, Chris Wagner, great job over there, controlling everything. Hitting buttons. You can, yeah, you control us. So thanks so much. And uh, to everyone who's listening, thank you for joining us. Uh, go to your podcast player, give us a great rating. That helps us get the word out about Youth Culture Matters. And we will chat with you again on the next episode. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.